Welcome to Westridge Church. Well, we're excited about a risen Savior. We're excited about one who is high and lifted up, and he draws people to himself, and we just try to stay out of the way. And uh, we're so excited. Today on the calendar is Palm Sunday. And when we began our journey from here to there, the series that we've been in over the last several weeks, we began with Jesus planning his entry into Jerusalem. We had Palm Sunday a few weeks ago, as, as Pastor Brian shared with us. But today is it on the calendar. And on this day, he sent his disciples into the city to find a small donkey for him to ride on. And so from the Mount of Olives down into the valley and back up into the eastern gate of Jerusalem, he rode. And as he came into the city, he was met by people doing what we were just doing, worshiping him with all they had. They were chanting. They were actually chanting psalms. They were grabbing palm branches. They were grabbing cloaks. They were waving the palm branches around. They were shouting Hosanna, which means save us now. And they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Palm Sunday, it was an energized crowd of common people believing that salvation from, uh, from the Roman Empire had finally come. They believed that their deliverance had finally arrived. And we've learned throughout this series, from here to there, that in order for Jesus to move us from where we are to where God wants us to be, he was very intentional throughout the week in all the things that he said and did. In fact, we see in the, in the gospel writings that he actually planned coming into the city like this. We've seen how intentional he was all week long. But on Palm Sunday, what is the point that he is trying to make? Interestingly enough, according to history, on the west side of the city, there was also another procession going on. Coming from his palace on the coast and riding into the west side of Jerusalem was Pontius Pilate. You see, whenever the Jews were having a, a big feast, whenever they were having one of these big gatherings like the Feast of Tabernacles or Passover, which they were getting ready to celebrate at the end of the Passion Week, the Romans would send their governor in and he would take up his residence in Jerusalem so that they could remind the people that no matter what your festivals say, that no matter how excited you are about your God, that you are actually under Roman authority and we want to make sure that you never forget it. Pilate is described by, by historians as being very pompous. He was a man of rough and haughty spirit, one is quoted as saying. Others have described him as extremely covetous and, and oppressive. If you were against him, he was going to make sure that you felt it. He would not allow it. In other words, this was the kind of guy who, when he came to town, he would not be riding on a donkey. But rather on the west side of town... You might imagine white stallions. You might imagine the, the clip-clopping of the powerful hooves of this Roman infantry coming to town, the, the soldiers shining in splendor from their armor and, and reflecting the sun, banners held high with, with gold eagles at the top, and reminders to everyone that they were under the authority of the Roman Caesar, who the Romans believed to be the Son of God. You see, when Caesar Augustus died, there was a shooting star seen in the, in the sky. And so the Romans believed that when Augustus died, he actually ascended into the heavens and became a god. 
So when Caesar Tiberius was born, the Caesar who was in charge during this last week of the life of Christ, when he was born, they actually said that he was the son of God. Historians tell us that the Romans had a saying about this time. They said, there is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved other than that of Caesar. The contrast, the contrast is pretty amazing, isn't it? In the east, this humble rabbi from Nazareth, with commoners cheering with great expectation that God's plan was finally being fulfilled, I mean, Jesus taught a path of humility. He taught to care for the poor and oppressed. He taught his people, his followers, to love those who hate them, to to serve others, and that to be the greatest you actually had to be the least. On the other side of town, the western side of the city, the ruling class of Jerusalem and the authorities there, coming out for their procession, coming truly out of obligation they had to acknowledge the power of rome i mean rome represents everything the world has to offer it's the height of power it's the height of strength it's the height of of man-made success anything that people could do anything that people could accomplish in their own strength and their own power at its pinnacle it was the roman empire two different crowds two different powers two entirely different ways to live. Throughout this series, as God moves us from here to there, we talked about how on Sunday of the Passion Week, God's desire is to move us from, our fo- from a focus on happiness to a focus on holiness. On Monday, as, he, as Jesus came over into the temple and, and flipped over the tables, he was saying he wants to see purity in every area of our lives. On Tuesday, we talked about Jesus wanting to to move the people, to move his followers, to move the people of the day from a lifestyle of rules to a lifestyle of relationship, to knowing God personally. Pastor Ryan talked about how Jesus approached the Pharisees on Wednesday with the seven woes that he gave them. Very strong words to say to them, listen, don't be hypocrites, but rather I want you to move from preaching words to practicing truth. And on Thursday, as Pastor Brian shared with us last week, in the midst of betrayal, Jesus demonstrates the faithfulness of God. That's Jesus' week. I don't know what Pilate's week was like. I have no idea what he was doing on Monday or on Tuesday or on Wednesday or Thursday. But on Friday morning around 6 a.m., these two different worlds, this contrast... These two different worlds would collide. And that's where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 15. Now on Friday, the Passion Week. Mark 15 says this. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him, that is Jesus, of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now when it comes to the life of Jesus, and his last week in particular, it gives us 
a great advantage to have four authors recording what they know to be true about the events of the day. They, they don't all record the same details even about this day. This really, to this point, the most important day of Jesus' life. I mean, you would think at some point if they wanted to make sure they had it all together, that they would collaborate, that they would get together, and they would just make every single one of their stories the same. But, but instead, they don't do that. And I think it gives us great advantage to see their different perspectives as they fill in the holes and give us a, a greater picture of the day. You know, for me, when I think about this last day of Jesus' life and his death, the most important part to me are the seven sayings that he had on the cross, the seven words of Jesus and how he, all the meaning that goes behind them. I mean, these are the last words that he had on earth. They're so crucial. But not all of the gospel writers record all of the seven words. There's the, the wounds that Jesus suffered on, that, on this day. There's the crown of thorns. There's the, there's the, the beating that he took on. There's there the nails. There's all the things that went on. His, his beard being plucked and, and being mocked and, and the Roman soldiers gambling for his clothes and all of those things. But not all of the gospel writers record all of those things. But all of them, on some level, they all record Jesus' meeting with Pilate. It must have been a very pointed moment in everyone's mind. I mean, to think about it, it is a very striking contrast, just as it had been earlier in the week. Here's the roughed up, ragged, humble Jesus standing before the pristinely dressed symbol of all the world's power and authority, the arrogant Roman governor. Jesus had said very little to the Jewish council the night before when they brought him up on charges. There were lots of false charges and, and people couldn't get their story straight. But they are intense in this moment because they know that this situation has to be resolved immediately. They have to have Jesus executed right now. They have to do it first thing in the morning. They have to get Pilate's attention and his permission right now because if they don't get it now, as the rest of Jerusalem begins to wake up, there's no way the crowd that had, had praised Jesus on Sunday would allow him to be crucified on Friday. Instead, this Jewish council, they've gotten a, a group together in the middle of the night. They've, they've all but created a, a riot now and they've, they've asked for Jesus to be killed and they have one irritated Roman governor who's been woken up first thing in the morning and they have this one chance to have Jesus executed. It's the moment they've been waiting for. Now two of the gospel writers point out a, a small but particular detail from the first part of the day. Before the crown of thorns is twisted and placed upon his head, before Jesus is whipped 39 times by a, a whip with nine braids laced with pieces of glass and, and pottery and, and rock, before the crossbeam was laid on his shoulders that he wouldn't have the strength to carry down the road of suffering to the place called Skull Hill, known as Golgotha, before all of that, as he is standing before this symbol of the world's power and authority, the Roman governor, as he's standing there before Pilate, two of the gospel writers point out that his hands are tied very simply, standing in this place before Pilate, he is bound. Matthew and Mark both notice it. Matthew says it this way, very simply. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, with all of the other details of the moment, with all of the important things that happen on this Friday, the last day of Jesus' 
earthly life, why is it so important to point out that Jesus' hands are tied? Why do they point out this picture? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been looking forward to a day so much for an extended period of time, you've had it in your brain and, and you feel like you know exactly what it's going to look like and you know exactly what you want it to be, but when you get there, it's a little bit different than how you imagined. I mean, think about something you're looking forward to right now. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a vacation. Maybe you're going somewhere spring break or, or maybe you're heading somewhere on summer break that you're already planning for, whatever it might be, and you're looking forward to it. You've got a picture in your mind of what this should look like. Angela and I were following some friends on Instagram recently who, who took their three kids to Disney World. And so they had, that you're on, you know, on Instagram you're following the story, they're having pictures with characters, they're having great food, they're on the rides, they're having a great time, first two, three days. Long about day four, the picture changes as they declare two of their three children are in the happiest place on earth with strep throat. Yeah. They had this idea in their mind of what this would look like, but when they got there, it looks completely different. I remember when our first son was born. I remember when Will was born. He's 10 now. And I remember, you know, before a child is born, especially before you have your first child, you have all this anticipation. You feel like you know what it's going to look like. You, know, you feel like you've got this day laid out in your mind. It's going to be incredible. There's going to be angels singing. It's going to be the easiest process. It's going to be awesome. And so you have all these, all these months leading up to it. And then Will, our, our first child, decided not to come on time. He was a late arrival. And so we had an extra eight days to wait for him to come. And so the doctors, as they, as they met with Angela and said, listen, it's going to be on this day. And so they, they, we scheduled the day for her to be induced. And, and we made our way to the hospital. I mean, I remember so many things about this day. I remember what, what Angela was wearing. I remember how excited she was to just be over with this process and to meet this little guy. And I remember the the hospital room that we were in, and I remember the, the nurses explaining to me t two monitors. And she said, this monitor on the left here, this is, this is Angela, and this is her heart rate, and she pointed out some other things about it, and, and, and this monitor on the right, this is, this is the baby's heartbeat and, and all these things, and she explains it all. And I remember as the process went on, I remember Angela at one point ex exclaiming and, and telling to me, uh, she didn't curse or swear like the movies or anything, but she's in a lot of pain. And as, that's just, you know, that's what happens. And so, but I remember, I remember walking over to the monitor and saying, well, according to this, you're not hurting that much. <laughs> you should pray for my wife every single day. <laughs> and I remember the, the other monitor. I remember where they said, you know what, you're, the baby, uh, the heart rate is here, and when it gets out of the range, you know, it'll beep, and we'll come check it, and everything will be fine, and and it happened several times. We didn't think about it. Somebody would come in, they'd smile, they'd, they'd wave at Angela, and they'd walk out. And, then, and, and I just, I remember this going, and I remember it happening more frequently. And then I remember whatever those numbers were supposed to be on that monitor, I remember them just going absolutely berserk. And I remember nurses rushing in. I remember doctors rushing in. And, and I remember this moment that we had thought was going to look a particular way. Now is looking entirely different because the umbilical cord is wrapped around his neck a couple of times or more, and now she's being rushed into emergency surgery, into C-section, and praise God, everything worked out fine, but it looked nothing like we thought it was going to look. 
And here, though, all the things that we can think of on this life, all the days that we can look forward to, the, the big presentations, the big moments, the big games, all of those things, they pale in comparison to Friday of the Passion Week. It's the final day of Jesus' life. All of the teachings, all of the miracles, everything that the disciples and followers had been looking forward to. I mean, the Son of God has come to vanquish the enemy, to establish his kingdom, to conquer death. And I think it strikes them so much that this looks nothing like we thought it would because here he is standing with his hands tied and beat up and bound. This is not how we thought this would go. Oddly enough, an Old Testament writer by the name of Jeremiah, a prophet, he wrote about this moment a few hundred years earlier. He writes it down in his book called Lamentations, and it says this. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. Hundreds of years before this moment, it's predicted, prophesied, that Jesus would be bound. Now, in the Old Testament, the word picture that goes with this idea of him being bound is that of an ox and a plow. When an ox has that yoke put on them, they are no longer in control of their own direction. They have, they have lost their freedom. And from the moment that Jesus allowed himself to be bound by the Jewish council and brought before Pilate, he no longer has control of the events of the day. But something beautiful is happening in this moment. Something amazing is happening that at the time no one understood. As Jesus is there bound, something else is taking place. All of the things that bind us in our everyday lives, all of the things that rob us of our freedom, all of the things that cause us to not to be able to live the life that God desires for every single one of us to live, they were all bound up and put on him. As Jesus is bound, so are all of those things bound with him. The things that bind us, that ultimately break us down and cause us to want to give up on the Christian life or, or maybe even on life altogether, were put on him. The prophet Isaiah says it this way in chapter 53, verse 4. He says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. And over the next several hours, particularly for six hours on that Friday, the things that bind us, the things that enslave us, bound him. The things of this life that break us down, crucified, Savior. There are several things that can tie our hands in this life if we allow ourselves to be bound up in this way. If we allow ourselves to be bound up in this way, we can develop un unhealthy habits and, and patterns of destructive behavior, and we can get into these unending cycles of, of defeat. And one of those things that can bind us up is habitual sin. James chapter 3 verse 2 says that we all stumble in so many ways. The scriptures say that that each of us struggle with what are called besetting sins. They are, are those things that you go back to time and time again. For everyone, it's something different. I mean, it might be anger or gossip or lying. For others, it's some form of addiction. It's something that's on your mind probably daily, and it feels like at times that it's leading you around. It's, it's yoked upon your neck, and there's nothing you can do about it. You, may, you might feel like it's just 
part of your makeup and, and it's just gotten you bound up. It's just part of your DNA and I'm just a slave to this. There's nothing I can do about it. Nothing keeps us in bondage like habitual sin. But Jesus was bound so that we don't have to be. By Jesus' death, all the things that make us feel like we are trapped and unable to overcome, that cause us to feel unable to live free in this life, are absolutely crushed. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 6. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Because of Jesus' death on Friday, sin no longer has the power to make us slaves. It no longer has the power to bind us up and lead us around. So why would we allow it to for even a moment? I don't know if you've ever been driving down the road. In fact, I'm, I'm sure you have. You've been driving down the road and you come to a place where you realize things just don't smell right. And you're driving and, and you realize that something over the recent time or maybe for a couple days has been hit and somewhere near the road there's a carcass it's lying around and it's just nasty and you smell it and you blame it on other people but it's just the carcass on the side of the road you know this week in montana they they changed one of the the laws and they actually are now allowing if uh, if you would like to take what's on the road and make it into a stew it's actually legal in the state of montana now listen my people, some of my people, one half of my family are from southwest Virginia. They say we're not rednecks, we're hillbillies, and they're serious. But that is over our line, okay? You don't, you don't turn that stuff into dinner. That's not right. But a lot of people, that's what they're doing with habitual sin. Day after day, it's like we, it's not only that we cook up the stuff and put it in our bodies, but it's like we just walk around with this carcass around our neck, and we know something stinks, but we refuse to take it off. That's habitual sin. And there is absolutely no reason to leave that carcass around your neck, but rather because of the death of Jesus Christ, it can be thrown away so far, you'll never have to get a whiff of it again. That's what his death does for us. That's what his death accomplishes. It conquers sin so that we don't have to deal with it anymore. We have to be vigilant about it. We might have to come in repentance over and over again, but I'm telling you through the victory that comes in the death of Christ, it can be thrown away. Alongside of sin, <clears throat> alongside of sin is something so subtle that it binds up many people, and that's guilt. The word sin simply means to miss the mark. But the word sinner has its roots in Latin. And it means guilt or guilty one. Listen, there is no greater depressant than guilt. Guilt might come from past words or actions that you regret, or it might come from things you feel like you should have done and never did. Guilt robs us of our peace. It robs us of our hope. I was reading a story about a little boy with a slingshot and he goes and he sets up targets in the backyard behind his grandparents' farm, and he's shooting for hours and just can never seem to hit a target. And finally, it's dinner time, and he begins to make his way back up the house and back up to the house. And the, on this farm, his his grandmother has a duck. I don't know why she has a duck, but she has a duck. And so the little boy who hasn't hit anything in hours decides he would just kind of take one last shot and shoot it towards the duck. There's there's no way in the world he's going to hit the duck. But actually. He hits the duck right between the eyes, and it falls down dead. He has killed Grandma's duck. And he looks up, 
the window of the back of the house, and he realizes his little sister has seen the entire thing, and yet she doesn't say anything to Grandma. So he hides the duck in the woodpile, and he comes in, and they have dinner, and it happens to be little sister's turn to do the dishes. But she speaks up and says, oh, no, 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 no. Charlie told me that he would like to do the dishes tonight. And she leans over, and she whispers, remember the duck. Several other things happen like this throughout the week, different chores where it's supposed to be her turn. And she just speaks up, and she says, no, 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 no. Charlie has told me, he's such a good big brother, and he has told me that he would actually like to take care of this for me. And every single time that that they have this kind of interaction, she just leans over to him and she says, remember the duck. And finally, after three or four days of this, Charlie can't take it anymore, and he goes to grandmother, and he says, Grandma, I have sinned before God and this company. He says, I killed the duck. It was a great shot, but I killed the duck and I just can't take it anymore and his grandmother looks at Charlie and she says I know you killed the duck I was looking out of my window (laughs) but listen to what she says she says because I love you I forgave you I just wondered how long you were going to let your little sister make a slave of you it's amazing what guilt can do to us It's amazing how it can enslave us. It's amazing how it can tie our hands. It's amazing how it can rob us of our freedom. Guilt is never from God. Guilt causes us to look back and robs us of our future. Guilt makes us feel isolated and abandoned. It was on the cross that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of the guilt and shames that we might feel from our own actions not only bound Jesus, but they nailed him to the cross. He was abandoned so that none of us would ever have to be. You would think that God would abandon the murderers. You would think that God would abandon those who have hurt children. You would think that God would abandon the abusers. You would think that he would abandon the greedy and the selfish and the judgmental. You would think that God would abandon all those who have spoken out against him and against the people of God. But God does not abandon any of those people. Instead, he abandons his own son. And with his hands nailed open, Christ was bound to the cross and punished for every sin, for every thought of guilt. God abandoned his son so that everyone who has ever been born and fallen short of the glory of God might be able to move from sinner to saint, from guilty to guiltless. That is exactly what is happening as Jesus is bound and nailed to the cross on this day. And there is nothing any of us can do in our own strength to be loosed from these things that bind us. And I say that because one of the more crucial things, binding up Christ followers and also preventing people from putting their own faith and trust in Christ, is their own self-sufficiency. Just this desire, just this idea that I I can do it myself, I can be good enough, I can get to God on my own. I can bury my guilt on my own. Our culture is filled with these ideas, terms that would leave us to believe that, of course, you can do it on your own. You don't need God's help. Terms like self-determination, self-knowledge, self-esteem, self-help. These things cause us to believe that we can 
will ourselves out of sin, that we can be strong enough, that we can stop, that we can put the addictions down, that we can do it in our own power. But it's just not the case. The only way that we can find freedom is to find it in the death of Jesus Christ and allow him to take off the chains that have bound us. The unfortunate thing for so many, as one author says, is this. The major dam holding up spiritual renewal in our lives is our own self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency leads us to believe that we can handle things on our own. It dilutes our faith in God's power. It creates prayerlessness. Self-sufficiency always takes us backwards. It always takes us back to those things that were binding us up in the first place. Over 100 years ago, Charles Spurgeon did a pastor named Charles Spurgeon did a a message on self-sufficiency, and he says this. He says, all that you can do apart from Jesus in order to win salvation will only cause you increased suffering. He's saying it's not possible. I'm glad glad enough when I meet with a man who is starved out of self-sufficiency. Now you are ready for Jesus. Oh, hearer, you have tried many things, great things and hard things and painful things, Why not try this simple matter of faith? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Trust Jesus to cleanse you and he will do it. Put yourself into your Savior's hands once and for all and he will save you. Come and receive divine grace freely. Bring no good works, no good words, no good feelings. None of those things are the price of pardon. Come with an empty hand and be touched by the Lord by faith. Accept his mercy as the gift of his love. Come empty-handed and receive. Come undeserving and be favored. Only come into contact with Jesus who is the fountain of life and you shall be saved. We cannot do it on our own. Salvation cannot be accomplished by us. It's not by any good works that we can do lest anybody should boast that they came up with it on their own. But rather for by grace are you saved through faith. 2 Corinthians 1 says this, we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. You can just feel the Apostle Paul. We're trying to do it on our own. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. To move from death to life or from sinner to saint and to truly experience a life of freedom that is beyond guilt, that is beyond sin, that is beyond any other cycle of defeat. We must come to the end of ourselves. And when we get to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of Jesus. When we get to the end of ourselves and and we confess that it is only by his death that we are set free, we can be untangled, unhindered by the yoke that's leading us around. Whatever is enslaving you today, Jesus took it upon himself so you wouldn't have to. It might be anger. It might be anger at another person. It might be anger at yourself or or anger at God. Jesus was bound and died for that. It might be bitterness. It might be addiction. It might be guilt. It might be the past that's leading you around every day. Whenever you feel like you don't matter, that your mistakes are too great, I want you to remember that Jesus was bound up and he died for those things. And when he took on that yoke, And when he took it to the cross, all of those things died with him in order to move us from sinner to saint. And not only that, but when we put our faith and trust in him, all of those things, it's made possible for all of those things to die 
in us. Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I know it's hard to picture on Friday. I know that when you look at Friday and you see all the world's power, all the world's accomplishments, all that the world can build, and you look at this humble teacher from Nazareth, I know that from the outside looking in, that it doesn't make any sense to put your faith and trust in the one who has been bound. But can I tell you something? Sunday is coming. And on Sunday, we discover that this one who is bound, this one who is beaten, this one who has been bloodied for us has more power in his pinky than every other empire that's ever reigned on this earth. He is higher, he is greater, no Roman Caesar comes close, no dictator, no president comes close. He, all power is found in this Jesus. He has the ability to destroy all sin and raise us all to new life, and that's what it's all about. Sunday begins with two processions coming into Jerusalem. One that was the height of all the world has to offer and one that looks like nothing a normal person would be interested in. Friday began with a leadership council binding Jesus and sending him before this Roman governor and sending him to death. It's interesting how the week ends and therefore how Friday ends. It's not the words of Jesus that put the final punctuation on the Passion Week. From the cross, Jesus declares, it's finished. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But those aren't the final words of this Friday. Rather, the final words come from a Roman military leader standing at the foot of the cross who looks up to see Christ after he has already breathed his last and he says these words, truly, this man was the son of God. Before he confirmed it on Sunday, on Friday, the Savior died for your sins and mine. On Friday, the Savior died so that we would no longer have to be slaves, so that we would not have to live our lives like, like people just out of control by our own sins, by our own habits, by our own guilt, but rather he died to break us free of those chains so that we could experience the joy of his salvation, so that we could allow him to lead us around, knowing that he has his very best in store for us. He died to throw off the world's chains and to set us free. Would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. As we come to the end of this Passion Week, I want you to know that today, if you're feeling enslaved, if you're feeling enchained, that you do not have to wait 
for Easter Sunday to be set free. We're anticipating resurrection Sunday like crazy, but listen, we can live it out every day. We can experience it every day. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, maybe now in this moment you would pray to God and put your faith and trust in him. Confess that this Jesus died for you so that you could be set free from from now through eternity forevermore. In your own words, if you want to put your faith and trust in Christ right now, you can pray something like this. God, I believe that you sent your only son, the son of God, into this world to live sinless and to have all of our sins, all of my sins, cast upon him. And I believe that in his death, he conquered those things. And I believe he is resurrected today that I could begin to experience a new life as part of the kingdom and family of God. If you put your faith and trust in Christ today, I want to ask you, please, at the end of this service, would you go to our help center? Would you please just let someone know that you did that? At the end of this service today, there'll be life care counselors on both sides of the stage. You can ask one of them to pray with you, but we want to help you get started right. If today, for the first time, you're putting your faith and trust in the amazing grace of God that can set you free. If you're here today as a Christ follower and there's something leading you around by the neck, there's a habitual sin in your life, maybe there's past guilt or regret or maybe you've just been trying to do it on your own and your life has gotten faithless and prayerless and there's nothing of the abundant life of Christ in your daily walk, now's the time to be set free. Now is the time to look to this cross, to look to the one who suffered and died for you and say, God, I'm sorry for not living worthy of that sacrifice. And from this day on, I'm gonna be diligent, vigilant about living free in Christ. Holy Spirit, would you do the thing that only you can do in this moment? Would you set people free? In Jesus' name.